Praise God. We will read today from two texts of Scripture in the application of the study of Scripture. Context is always king. We'll read first of all from Matthew the 27th chapter where Matthew in his synopsis and narrative sees Jesus Christ as king. In one of the seven cries from the cross, Matthew the 27th chapter, verse number 45. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land to the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is to say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Then turning to the writing of Hebrews chapter number 9, the beautiful, eloquent writing of the book of Hebrews chapter number 9. Let us begin reading at the 11th verse. But Christ being come a high priest of good things to come, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. Directing your attention to a phrase in verse number 11, where it says, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle. I want to speak for a few moments today in the teaching spirit on a perfect tabernacle. A perfect tabernacle. You may be seated. James, viewing a generation that in so many respects had gone rogue, wondering such as even this generation today into different paths of apostasy, and degradation and decadence wrote to the church that the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much it's not the prayer of a man it's the prayer of a righteous man righteous there connotes conformity to god's standard when we open the bible we see god's standard it's nothing less than the staple of perfection to which he wrote and he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. The purpose of the dispensation of grace today is for God to somehow perfect saints, to seven among us till he finds a remnant that measures to the measurement of his standard. God said of Sardis, they shall walk with me in white because they are worthy. 
Our worthiness and our redemptive value to the world is only realized when we walk with Him in the purity of white, in the perfection of His righteousness. Right. Romans teaches us being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood, to declare His righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. That word forbearance there in its original connotation means tolerance. In science and in life, everything is designed with tolerances. Anatomically, the human body has built-in tolerances for the fluctuation of blood pressure that sometimes can rise above 120 over 80 without jeopardizing a person's health. In the endocrine system, the thyroid gland produces a hormone called thyroxine. If the thyroxine levels fluctuate or become imbalanced by just an infinitesimal degree, it will throw the body into a panic because with thyroxine, there are no tolerances. In carpentry, the builder's idea of perfection is when he is true in his measurement within the tolerance of sixteenth of an inch on square. In race car mechanics, when a car is designed, it is measured to 150 thousandths of an inch tolerance on all metal surfaces with 200 thousandths of an inch on glass surfaces. James says, let patience have her perfect work, that you may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. A space shuttle has 2.5 million operating parts, all of which must be perfect in their function for a successful launch out of orbit and reentry into this Earth's atmosphere. The space shuttle Columbia, though it successfully landed on the moon, imploded upon re-entry into this Earth's atmosphere because one component of its heat shield, called a propitiator, was torn away and rent at takeoff. John writes to the church how the blood of Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. Like a propitiator on a space rocket, the blood of Jesus is our heat shield. It is our thermal protector. It covers us and it protects us from the elements around as we journey to another dimension. The word sin means in Scripture to miss the mark. All of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All of us at one time or another have missed the mark. But because of the perfection of the covering of His blood, today we don't have to miss the mark. Today we don't have to fall short. But we can hit the bullseye in the Holy Ghost with accuracy and with precision. For all of the mistakes of the past, for all of our human frailty, and shortcomings today because of His blood. All right. We can achieve that divine perfection. Acts chapter number 28 unfolds the story how the cold and chilled members of the shipwreck stood around a fire to warm themselves. 
It was a fire the barbarians had built. And when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and laid them on the fire, a viper came out of the heat and fastened on Paul's hand. The blood of Jesus is our protector. The blood of Jesus is our propitiator against sin. But when the church starts warming itself around the barbarian's fire, when the church starts putting sticks to build the barbarian's fire, the blood, even in all of its perfection, cannot protect us from the spirits that rise out of the heat of that worldly element and come against us. More now than ever before, it's imperative of us to warm ourselves around the right fire somehow to move around an apostolic fire of the purity of his power and cease to put sticks and warm ourselves around an unholy element where spirits and rebellion and things can fasten on us and attach themselves to us a man that is perfect and entire in the constitution of his character is a man that is not only willing to commit his future to God, he is also willing to surrender his past. When Abraham climbed up Moriah's mountain, he committed his future into the hands of God by taking the Son of Promise and building an altar and offering him on that altar. However, the real test for Abraham was if he was willing to surrender his past. We see this in the 23rd chapter of Genesis. Abraham's wife Sarah had died. And the Bible says that Abraham stood up before his dead and he inquired of the sons of Heth for a burying place to bury Sarah who represented his past. The sons of Heth understood the greatness of Abraham and they said unto him, You don't have to give us any money. You don't have to pay us anything but we will give you a sepulcher in the choice of our sepulchers. But Abraham was not interested in making deals or negotiations. If he was going to bury his dead, if he was going to bury his past, he was going to bury it by purchasing the right at full price. And so Abraham stood in the audience of the sons of Heth and weighed the silver 400 shekels in weight. In an hour when men are going to the bargaining basement of compromise, I'm preaching to a people, when it comes to surrendering your past, you cannot afford to pay anything less than full price. The spirit of the world and the spirit of the devil in compromise is telling us that we can pay half price and somehow grow into the full constitution of our spiritual character in that perfection. But the only way we're going to achieve it today, the only way we're going to reach that plateau today is by paying full price to get past the past and purchasing an opportunity to step into all that God has planned for us and His purposes. Every good gift and every perfect gift comes down from above, from the Father of lights in whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. It is obvious this perfect gift is none other than the gift of the Holy Ghost. The promise that is to you and to your children, to all, even as many as the Lord shall call. If the Holy Ghost is the perfect gift, then what is the good gift? 
I believe that the good gift is the gift of loneliness. For the greatest of men that God has ever equipped and made in His kingdom are men that He has taken from among men and developed in loneliness and in isolation. God separated Paul for two years, taking him to the mountains of Arabia. I find it amazing how God would separate Paul from the ministry of Peter, who was Pentecost preacher, and from James, Jerusalem's pastor, because God wanted to mold Paul apart from the influence of men. And sometimes God will take us and maroon us in a place of loneliness where we don't understand all that He's doing because He wants to make us, separating us from the influence of others and from outside voices. When Jesus fed the multitude, 15,000 attended. But when Jesus was led away to be crucified, all men forsook Him and fled. For the closer you and I move toward the fulfillment of our purpose, the lonelier the path will become. And the fewest of people that will be willing to walk with us and go along. But it's there in the pain and agony of loneliness amid all of our human limitations that all the lines in our life begin to fade. It's coming into full, full view is the perfection of the Lamb of God. It, Mary had a little lamb. And everywhere Mary went, it says the lamb was sure to go. How often have we been acquainted with the dread and treachery of loneliness, but come to realize we're never alone. This little lamb follows us wherever we go. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, He said, I will fear no evil, for Thou art with me. There's something about the permanence of the omnipresence of God. Even when we don't see His manifest presence, we have the surety of a token that His omnipresence is there. That He will never leave us nor forsake us. But lo, in an hour when it seems that all have been deserted, He'll be there. A constant friend, a guide, a companion. I'm telling you today that though one may walk alone, he's really never alone. It's the gift of loneliness. And how David so eloquently writes, walking through the valley of the shadow of death. But notice he did not say it's the valley of death. He said it's the valley of the shadow of death. In other words, it's just a shadow. This valley will not be my demise. This valley will not be my end. But I will, through faith in His purpose, walk through. Amen. I'm not staying here. This is not a permanent location that's going to be a tombstone that marks the point of my devastation or ruin or wreck or demise. But I will rise and I will walk through and through the valley of the shadow of death. He will come to minister to you and to me. The gift of loneliness. In his despair, David, in another reference, cried, Oh, that I had wings of a dove, then I might fly away and be at rest. The species of the dove, when it finds a mate, 
It remains with that mate for life. Even if the dove's mate dies, it will never be joined to another. Sometimes David's longing is our longing. We just want to leave it all behind and push the reset button and start over again. But it's then we remember. It's then that through reminiscence, our minds visiting memory lane, Remember how He cherished us in those moments when in our innocence, when we initially came to God at an altar of prayer, we made a commitment, shaking and trembling under the power of the Holy Ghost. I propose to you today, if He that died on the cross were to die again, all of us might have a right to take flight or with wings fly away. But since He is alive on the throne, leaving is not an option. Departure is not an option. Oh, hallelujah. He is not the God of the dead. He is the God of the living. And He is still as powerful today as He was when He hung on the cross. He is still alive today as He was when He rose from the grave. And because He is alive, if I had wings, I could fly away. But I never want to depart. There is no leaving in my heart. I want to stay in the cliff of Him that was cleft for me. Let me hide myself in Thee. It's one thing to be lonely, but it's entirely another for a man to take flight in a fit of madness and find himself utterly forsaken, a castaway, a vagabond. In Genesis, we see the making of the first Adam, whom God, with hands of a potter, molded into a perfect tabernacle. Though he was perfect, Adam's perfection was not complete until God cut him in his side that he bled. A rib was taken, and from that rib God built Adam's bride. The Bible says that God took Adam and put him into a deep sleep. Was this sleep, this deep sleep, a subconscious state, or was it an unconscious state? If it were a subconscious state, then Adam would have had the awareness to know what God was doing or feel the pain knife and reverberate through his nervous system as God performed the first surgery on man. But if during the process Adam was unconscious, then he would not have had any awareness or control to determine the outcome because in a deep sleep, a man is totally surrendered to his surroundings and to his environment. Many in the church today desire to have revival, but they want to maintain a measure of control over their environment. But God is looking for a people that are fully surrendered and that are fully committed. That when God begins to move, when the Holy Ghost begins to sweep in like a wind from elsewhere, we're not trying to monitor it. We're not trying to control the zephyr, but we fully surrender with hands lifted and hearts open. We say today, have your way in me. Do your work, O oh God. 
God. If it demands you doing spiritual surgery on me, make a cut, make an incision in me. I'm fully surrendered to all that you want to do to your plans and purposes for my life. When the Shekinah and glory of God fell in the days of the priests, it came down so powerfully and overwhelmingly and swiftly that the priests could not stand to minister by reason of the glory. That somehow the Holy Ghost would do the same thing today to arrest us in a state of suspense so that He can do His work and accomplish His purpose. The first Adam was made with hands. Formed from dust. But when Adam sinned by partaking of the forbidden, he tarnished the perfection of God. The last Adam, however, was conceived by the Holy Ghost and born of a virgin. Jesus Christ's humanity was a perfect tabernacle, not made with hands. That is to say, not of this building. In the beginning was the Word, and that Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. The Son is the brightness of God's glory, the very express image of His pur purpose or person. The teaching of the law instructs us that the life of the flesh is in the blood. Therefore, it is evident today that the death of the flesh is in the blood too. For if a phlebotomist were to draw Jesus' blood and put that blood under a microscope, his cells would show no deterioration in the mitochondria because his blood was perfect and it was sinless. Acts 20 and 28 tells us how God purchased the church with His own blood. In order for it to be God's blood, it had to be sinless and it had to be perfect. Paul said, we have a great high priest who was touched with the feeling of our infirmities. For he was tempted at all points like as we are, yet without sin. In the wilderness he was tempted to gain the crown without the cross. But he came through that experience because he put his trust in the Word of God. At that point, Jesus Christ did not sin. In Gethsemane, he was tempted to turn around and walk out on man for if it be possible let this cup pass for me because it was possible but at that point he did not sin but Jesus remained perfect David wrote centuries ago I have been young and now am old yet have I not seen the righteous forsaken nor a seed begging bread David was astounded that as he viewed the landscape of the church, he had never seen any patriarch or righteous man ever find himself in a place of forsakenness by the Spirit of God or left to his own sins or left to his own ruin. And then when Paul considered the depravity of man, he said there is none righteous, no, not one, save Jesus Christ, and he was crucified. I want to say this morning that Jesus Christ was a perfect tabernacle. His flesh was the embodiment of the sinless perfection of the righteousness of God until He that knew no sin became sin. And at that moment, 
For the first time in history, the righteous felt forsaken. That's why Jesus cried in the reference, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because when Jesus became sin, the Spirit of God withdrew itself and forsook that sinful flesh because God is so holy and He is so righteous that He cannot dwell where sin abides. The church he is called bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh that was taken out of his wounded side. The church is the very perfection of God in the earth today. And could it be this morning the reason why we don't see the same visitations of the Holy Ghost in the church as we did in times of old? It's because we are ceasing to walk in his righteousness and we are beginning to cultivate sin and beginning to cultivate attitudes of unrighteousness that he might present to himself he said a glorious church without having spot wrinkle blemish or any such thing the church may not have any spots she may not have any wrinkles and she may not have any blemishes but what concerns me today are the sins of any such thing because shedding blood is still a sin. Gossiping about our brothers simply because they don't believe like we do is still a sin. Dressing the part but walking as a Pentecostal with a proud look is still a sin. Calling ourselves Bible believers but never reading our Bible is still a sin. A sin of any such thing. Amen. I believe that if this generation does not find an altar and repent of its sin, that the perfection of God is on the verge of being forsaken. Oh, hallelujah. Amen. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies, that you present your tabernacle a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. If under the old Levitical system, the sacrifice could not be presented unless it was perfect, and that at best was a dead sacrifice. But in the New Testament, he said, I don't want a dead sacrifice. I want a living sacrifice. He's not looking for dead worship. He wants a living worshiper. He's not looking for a dead prayer. He's looking for a living prayer. He's not looking for a dead preacher. He wants a living preacher. Oh, hallelujah. I want to present my tabernacle as a living sacrifice in the perfection of God. He's not looking for a dead system. He's looking for a living and alive system that has the breath of God's spirit, that has the unction of his power, that has the sanction of his divine anointing. I don't want to be forsaken in this hour, but I want to walk in that perfection. I want to live in that dimension of glory and power and grace. The title of this podcast is Redefining Apostolicity. The man whose vision brought him in line with the holy visitation noted, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation. The tapestry of scripture is so infallible 
that it is not subject to the referendums of men in movements. The psalmist said, The word of the Lord is pure, as silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. How can improvements be made on the word of God that is pure, purified, and perfect? Before God closed the book, he said through the prophet, I shall cut off the man among you that is a master and a scholar. In that day, there were men who called themselves scholars, but who were found guilty of not washing in the pool of Siloam when they wrote the name of God on a scroll. Their mishandling of that name made them ceremonially unclean. Rebuking the religious of his day, Jesus said, You make the commandments of God of none effect by your tradition. The first step to redefining apostolicity, the church must understand that tradition is the enemy of revival in the supernatural. For all the law and prophets hang on two commandments, loving God and loving your neighbor as yourself. But tradition is so deadly and it is so devastating that it has the power to make those commandments of none effect. Every priest standeth daily, offering oftentimes the same sacrifices, which can never take away sin. Historians tell us that after Jesus shed his blood on the cross, there were traditionalists in that era who were still spilling blood on the temple altar, but there was no redemptive value or purpose for why they did what they did, because those sacrifices had no effect to take away sin. It was merely tradition. What does it mean to be apostolic in the fullest sense of apostolicity? The book of Hebrews teaches that Moses was a slave over his own house, but Christ is a son over his own house. This passage reveals that Christ has a method to his house, and that method is not slavery. That method is sonship. It has order, it has cohesiveness, and it has structure. There are many who correlate being apostolic to slavery or some form of bondage, because though they have been raised in the house, they lack a basic understanding of method. Consequently, they live with a slave's mentality. When the prodigal returned home, he said to his father, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired servants. What it means to be apostolic is being lost on a generation of prodigals who are being made to feel like slaves to the shame of their past when they have been liberated to the freedom of sonship. Whosoever commits sin is a slave of sin, and the slave abides not in the house forever, but the Son abides ever, for who the Son has made free is free indeed. Therefore, stand fast in the liberty wherewith Christ has made you free, Galatians teaches, and you shall know the truth, Jesus Christ said, and the truth shall make you free. The dichotomy is... You can be liberated, but not made free. 
for you can only be free to the degree that you know the truth. Many know the rules and many know the regulations, but they don't know the truth. But when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will lead you and he will guide you into all truth. You can know a truth, but until you develop a relationship with the spirit of truth, the pneuma of Aletheia, you will never be led into all truth. I don't want to stop at Acts 2.38 or build a booth at John 3.5, but leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on unto perfection, not laying again the foundation, redefining apostolicity, standing in the liberty wherewith Christ has made us free.